Welcome to Disrupt Disruption, a series of intimate interviews with global thought leaders and practitioners operating at the intersection of business, leadership and technology. We're discussing all things innovation and disruption and how to not only survive but thrive in these times of exponentially accelerating change. Trusted by CEOs, founders and leaders globally for the latest take on business models, methods, culture and leadership, we cut to the chase, debunk the hype and get real. You're in great company. I'm your host, Pascal Finette, co-founder of Be Radical. Hey everybody, Pascal here, back with another episode of Disrupt Disruption. Today we've got David Bell with us. David has an incredible background. We did just talk about his time at Wharton, where he was a professor for 20 years. He's got a good joke about this, which I will not ruin. He's also the author of a book called Location is Still Everything. You find that on Amazon and in your preferred bookstore everywhere. It's a great book to read. And today he's the uh, founder and runs a place called Idea Farm Ventures, where he backs and helps builds mission-driven companies for the modern customer. And we'll dig into that. I'm just super excited to have you here, David. Thanks so much for being here. Sure, Pascal. It's a pleasure to see you after, you know, we got together in real life in Chicago, which is always a treat these days. And now, of course, we're all living in this omni-channel life. So now we're doing the online version. So that's, uh, that's nice. Let's talk about omni-channels. You were an early investor into some of the most iconic modern-day e-commerce companies. So the companies which followed in the footsteps of the Ebays and the Amazons and you know, really created categories, created new business business models around direct-to-consumer, which you have presumably seen come out of some of your students, I assume, at Wharton, right? Yeah, so it was interesting. Sort of, I would say, like a three-step transition, Pascal. So first off, there was uh, Mark Law, who's very well-known in the community now. He also founded Jet.com. You know, some of the people may remember his first company was Diapers.com. Actually, originally was called 1-800-Diapers.com, which involved him and his business partner, Vinny, going to Costco, buying massive amounts of diapers on, I think, Vinny's dad's credit card and then selling them through the website. They transitioned to diapers.com, which was part of Quidzy, the holding company, meaning what if, and it was soap.com, casa.com, yo-yo.com. So that phase one was really taking a purely existing product like Pampers and making it available to customers through e-commerce. There was no notion then of anything like omni-channel. And then I think to your point, you know, phase two then was really a company like Bonobos, you know, founded by Andy Dunn, <clears throat> actually acquired by Walmart in 2017. And when Andy founded Bonobos, which was effectively, hopefully Andy won't take uh, umbrage at this, I may be underselling sort of a J Crew online, you know, better fitting men's chino was the iconic initial product. And the notion, you know, when he started was is this would be a pure e-commerce business. There would be no concept of involving sort of physical stores or external retailers. And so what was different from diapers is he was creating a product from scratch, like Bonobos didn't exist before the internet. So that was kind of the 2.0. But the 3.0 version of all of this was really full-up blown omni-channel where companies like Bonobos realized, hey, you know, guys might actually like to show up to our headquarters on 25th Street in New York City where you try on a pair of pants. And that led to them then creating what The Economist in 2016 called the Zero Inventory Store, the guide shop, where you go in, I give you a cup of coffee, I say, hey, Pascal, you look great in black, try the black suit, and then I ship it to your home. And then, of course, now you see companies like Warby Parker and that cohort where, you know, they actually operate sophisticated stores where they sell inventory. So it's sort of interesting, you know, products that already existed, let's sell them on the internet. 
let's create new products, use the internet only, and then let's sort of create new products that, pr- that came along with the internet but sell them both online and offline. And that's kind of where we are now in this sort of full-blown, be-everywhere customers want you to be omni-channel uh, world. You seem to have a great track record at spotting the disruption in the in this you know retail world. How do you do that? Not specifically for these companies. What is the rhetoric you're using to look at where is disruption emerging? I think a lot of it, actually, to be honest, too, Pascal, comes through some of the founders of these companies as, as well, and they're asking themselves a question, maybe internal, internally or rhetorically, and a question that Howard Schultz, I think, posed a long time ago when he started Starbucks. At least I read it in a case about Starbucks, which is, you know, what's wrong with the status quo? And in the context of Starbucks, it was fairly obvious. He went to Italy. He was like, man, people in Italy drink a ton of coffee. People in America drink a ton of coffee. People in Italy drink, you know, great coffee in a beautiful space made by a barista. People in America drink bad coffee made at home by you. <laughs> you know, what's wrong with this problem? And so I think what happened, thanks to the enabling factors of the internet, meaning that you and I can build a website, we can take payment, we can have third-party logistics, that whole infrastructure is just sitting there for us to access. You might wake up one day and say, I really don't like my shaving cream. It's just really bad. It's overpriced. Buying it's a pain in the neck. Let me start a company, you know, Cremo. You know, I really don't like the fact that my eyewear is 300 bucks and I have to go to Lens Crafters and pick them up. You know, let me see why is that the case. So I think what happened was you have these enabling factors sitting there and then you have quote unquote what I call everyday people. I don't mean this pejoratively. I mean, you and I, everybody inclusively, where there's just something about your daily life that, that you find unsatisfying. And now if you have the willpower, you have the mechanisms by which you can actually fix that. So Michael Dubin, sort of a comedian and his day job, annoyed at the price of his raises, starts Dollar Shave Club. So you had a whole kind of wave of this stuff, which is still ongoing and continuing. And I think what's interesting, Pascal, is that early companies doing this There was some design innovation, I would say, in the product, but often you're using contract manufacturers and fairly standard products. And the unlock really is giving customers better prices and giving them a better buying experience. Now I think you're seeing companies also coming in with sort of true innovation in the product, you know, material science, food science, and so on. Curious in this context, why do you think the Gillettes of this world couldn't do Dollar Shave? Well, I think there's a whole bunch of reasons, probably some of them are just internal structural reasons. You think about the incentives for you and I, if we're a manager at large company X, you know, how do we get up with mobility? We may be thinking about switching jobs to company Y. You and I might not want to take the risk to be the guys who tried to sell raises on the internet and the thing tanked. So I think the structure of the organization, the incentive structures for the individual People And you just kind of focused on other stuff, right? We could also say, since we mentioned Starbucks, you know, why didn't Folgers open a bunch of coffee shops a la Starbucks? Well, they were just viewing their business through the lens of something that's manufactured and sold in a supermarket to be consumed in the home. They weren't sort of sitting back thinking more holistically, how do we get a great uh, caffeinated beverage in the hands of someone who wants it? I guess this actually reminds me, maybe partly because of my academic background, Pascal, one of my favorite articles goes way back to the 60s by a guy called Ted Levitt. It was called Marketing Myopia. And what he spoke about Marketing Myopia is the way in which you define your competition and what you do either limits or expands your conception of your business. So if you're United Airlines, yeah, you compete against American, but you also in some sense compete against Zoom. If it's about connecting people, you can compete against the iPhone. So, And I think perhaps some of those companies that are more traditional, they're, they're thinking of themselves in terms of a specific product market fit as opposed to maybe an underlying need why did universities take a long time 
to get into online education? Well, because they have classrooms and professors and they put 70 people in a room for 90 minutes. If you and I were to start a company around education, we might say, well, what do people need to learn? How do they want to do that? And then we have Pascal producing some great content distributed on the phone. So I think when you've got legacy infrastructure too, you tend to think of the world in a certain way. Does it mean that as a large corporation, you're actually better off thinking about really disruptive innovation, not talking about sustainable innovation, making a product just a little bit better, adding the whatever seventh <laughs> blade to the blade to, the, to your razor, you know, wherever we are at that moment. So disruptive innovation, is that a thing you have to then essentially outsource? Well, I think there's two models that people try exactly. So the outsource model is to, you know, have a nimble team of people within the company who are looking to acquire the others on the outside who are going out doing those crazy things, whether you're Amazon, whether you're PNG, whether you're Google, whoever you are, maybe you have a team that has that external lens. And then the second thing you could try and do is you could try and sort of inculcate it with inside the organization, but then who do you bring in to run that? How do you motivate those people? How do you then keep them inside? And I think there's been a history of companies doing this kind of thing effectively for certain periods of time. So again, since I know consumer and packaged goods, there was a whole idea that P&G had years ago, which was around connect and develop. So we've got a team of scientists in our R&D lab, but you know what? Some, I think this is actually true, although we can take a little license. Some dude, dude in the north northern part of Japan effectively was cleaning his house with something that looked like a Swiffer. So the more people we can integrate into our ecosystem, we can then have access to ideas that the, we can that we can then commercialize. So I think there's been a varying degrees of success of trying to do that internally vis-a-vis, -vis, let's have the right window on who we should acquire. And I think it bounces backwards and forwards as to which, which of those models which works better in which kind of sectors and for which kind of companies. As someone who's on the side of the startup, fighting the good fight for the startup, clearly also having skin in that game, wondering If you can say a little bit about your perspective on what happens after a startup gets acquired, because very often we see these stories of you had this incredibly innovative startup. They did these amazing things. I used to work at Google. We did this all the time. We bought these companies and then either they just disappear, they just get gobbled up and like get ground up and you don't even know what the startup was or the startup stays somewhat stagnant. I mean, again, like I'm not in the wet shaving market, but it feels to me that the craziness about Dollar Shave, for example, seems to have ebbed. I see Dollar Shave yeah. now in many other places, similar products popping up, but it doesn't feel to me like there's, there's a lot of excitement in that market anymore. What is your perspective on, on, the, on that? Yeah, I think it's actually a fascinating point, right? Because part of the magic or the allure of the startup, both for investors and also for customers, is they're sort of pitting themselves against the incumbent. They have a different point of view. They have a different way of expressing themselves or something unique to that kind of DNA. And then when you get folded into the larger enterprise, which is good for two reasons. Number one, that larger enterprise sort of has the ability to make the product at scale. We see a lot of companies in food and beauty and things like that. You know, once sort of a professional entity gets their hands on it, they can source more cheaply. They can professionalize the scaling of whatever the product is. And then the second thing they can really do is they can use their commercial leverage and acumen to blow it out in terms of distribution, both within the United States and also internationally. But then I guess part of the issue is when you standardize and you have to scale product and when you also have to take a commercialization route that's through more traditional channels, maybe both of those two things sometimes, but not always, work to take a little bit of the magic out of the process. And in particular, maybe some of the magic for the founder who now, for example, no longer work, wants to work for 
uh, quote unquote, the large entity against whom they were previously competing. So we do see this in the consumer space, particularly Pascal, because oftentimes maybe you've come up, you and I have some great probiotic uh, skincare thing we've come up with, but to try and make that at scale turns out to be pretty difficult. And the messaging that we use to really sort of resonate with people in a very personal way, once it's on the shelf at a large retailer, maybe some of that magic gets gets lost. So that's really the, the tension that develops. Oh, and and if I you just thought, sorry, Pascal, just yeah. one other thought here that's certainly not my own. There's a thought that Lawrence Lenahan wrote about a few years ago in the business of fashion. He, he was a investor here in New York, originally at First Mark Capital, and he made a few writing an article saying there will never be another billion dollar brand in the fashion space. Right. And his point there was that just the rate of diffusion and the rate of innovation and the micro segmentation works against that. So you and I come up with Lululemon, whatever it was, 25 years ago, you've got time to blow that into a huge multi-billion dollar company. But if we come up with it today, you know, May the 11th, uh, 2022, by Friday, someone else has already come up with Lululemon for people who pretend to do yoga. And then on Sunday, there's Lululemon for people who, you know, live in a certain part of the country. So that that speed and that fragmentation kind of works against the the, the blockbuster, if you will. That's an interesting point. If you're taking that argument, and I buy into this, by the way, we talk a lot about uh, hyperfragmentation when we talk about consumer markets, etc. And this belief of, uh, in our world, we talk about this hourglass economics. So this idea that these tiny little fragmented companies, we get more and more and more and more of them. And then you've got these like ginormous, you know, all-encompassing companies like the Zaras, etc. or Sheen. And then the stuff in the middle, which was traditionally Old Navy, etc., they just disappear. I wonder, as a company, not as a startup, as a startup, you have an issue which is you might not be able to actually build a very large company um, because you're stuck in your niche. But as a company, as an, as an incumbent, as a big company, how do you deal with that? Do you end up with thousands of micro brands under one umbrella? Are you even competing? Are you even thinking about this space? It's actually a fascinating question because I think in the old days when you had a constrained uh, distribution channel, again, going into our world of consumer goods, mm -hmm. you know, packaged goods, and also even into apparel, accessories, and so on, because it was a shelf space constraint, sometimes you wanted to proliferate the options just to keep the other guy out of it. You know, like Colgate has 101 varieties of toothpaste and flavors and stuff like that, effectively just to lock up the real estate to prevent the other big players from getting too much and also to prevent kind of the new ones from coming in. So there was a famous article in academia, at least, written by a fellow, Rajiv Lal, who was one of my advisors. He's now at Harvard Business School. And basically what shows actually really interesting is that if you look at Coke and Pepsi, for example, in many markets, this is again going back pre-internet, they tend to alternate their promotions. And the reason they do, like when Coke is on deal, Pepsi is not, because mm -hmm. when Pepsi's on deal, it stops the third brand coming in and getting any foothold. And so The major players have this sort of tit for tat that keeps out the new guys sort of coming in. And then there was another fellow, gosh, at, uh, at Emory, his name will come to me. He wrote a really interesting book called The Rule of Three. And the idea was that in any sector, you'd have the leader, the follower, and then a niche player. And that would kind of be it. But I think a lot of those ideas um, were, part, were certainly very valid, but, but partly driven by the fact that there was a constraint on getting access to customers and a constraint on distribution. So when you have a long tail environment and that constraint kind of goes away, then all the small can exist. And if the small can exist 
at scale, then everyone can kind of get what they want. And so why do you need the big thing after all? And actually, one last thing it reminds me of, Chris Anderson wrote his book, The Long Tail, which is a fascinating read, even 16 years later. What he said was, if, if you and I, Pascal, want to show a bunch of people at EY a movie and there's like 50 of them, you know, let's let's show them Lord of the Rings. They'll all be pretty happy with that. It's not a bad movie. It's like an eight out of 10 movie. But with a Netflix or a long tail business, what you could do is you could take those 50 people in the room and you could show every single person the thing that they really exactly liked. And so you could get their satisfaction. Everyone would be 10 out of 10 happy. Whereas if you show them the one blockbuster, the average is like eight. So the idea with the long tail is you could actually improve people's satisfaction by giving them access to the variety that's meaningful for them. Do you think there's going to be a Netflix for the retail sector? It used to be that you go into Macy's or something and it was the Netflix, right? It curated like all these brands yep. for you and you can pick and choose. And then, of course, online came and outside of Amazon, I mean, granted, there's more than just Amazon, but there's Amazon. And then there seems to be a, a massive growth of actual companies which sell directly to the consumer, not just the DTC companies, but like just companies selling directly to consumer. And like, yeah. Is this something where there's a little bit of like a swinging back and forth or do you actually see a permanent shift in the market? I think there's sort of two things that are happening that are really interesting. So that first of all, there's some really clever aggregators out there in different spaces. So let's take one that most people probably would know would be Farfetch, right, which is now a public company. And what they did that was really clever is <clears throat> they just took all this inventory from small boutiques, mainly through Western Europe, but also other places, United States, and they just make it available to you online. So now you have this massive assortment. Actually, this, no one's going to see it, but this jacket that I'm wearing, you know, I got from, I bought from Farfetch. But secondarily, in order for, for that variety to be personally meaningful, you need to give people the tools, either through recommendations or, or search within the environment to find what it is that they want. So if you can build that through an aggregator, that, that's really interesting. The second thing is, there are now sort of aggregators that have a point of view. So let's say, you know, an aggregator like the Vertical has a point of view on, you know, all the brands that make it into the aggregated ecosystem, let's say, have a sustainability piece to them, or all the food products that make it into either the website or the physical store of somebody like Pop-Up Grocer. You know, when you go there, they're going to be better for you, better for the planet. You're going to get exposed to products where there's um, an interesting founder, maybe somebody from an un underrepresented community and so on. So I think that's what's interesting now is the aggregators even that are coming along often are curated aggregators with a point of view that's mm. attractive to certain segments of customers. In that context, when you kind of zoom out and you look at the market and you say, it felt to me that the market like the 2000s and two, like two, two, 2000 whatever, like five was really like us getting comfortable with e-commerce. And then it shifted towards a little bit more like different ways of buying, which became like a little bit more like social commerce, et cetera. But it felt it was like these relatively big waves. They moved somewhat slowly. You could like actually jump on them. At the moment, it feels really chaotic, at least to me. And I'm wondering, do you think this is the new state or is this basically just the, the swirl in the until the next big wave kind of like moves us along? Yeah, you, you mean chaotic just in terms, Pascal, of just the amount of stuff that you could potentially be buying or that you're exposed to? Is that the. Yeah, and also the way you buy this stuff. It's literally anything now from I can go to my e commerce store or I can buy at yeah. Etsy or I can buy in my Instagram or, you yeah. know, it's everywhere. 
No, I think you're 100% correct. So I, I think that's exactly right. So the omni-channel world, which is both online and offline, is no longer just the e-commerce website, Macy's.com, and going into the Macy's.store, uh, store, right? It's also buying through these other digital channels. Like you can buy stuff. I bought a T-shirt the other day on, on Instagram. You can uh, get your food delivered here in New York City by Go, GoPuff or Gitter. You know, we'll get you something within, within 15 minutes. So there's all of these other facilitators of commerce again, that have a point of difference or a point of view, like it'll be here in 15 minutes or let me go to this individual's website and follow her in a social shopping network like Topshop Live and then like buy the buy the cleanser that she's using on her skin. So it's mediated both by different kinds of individuals and also mediated by different kinds of platforms. And then you get all kinds of other crazy things. I think you and I might have talked about this the other week in Chicago, but one of the really fun examples I came across recently, he was in the news again because... Elon Musk has said that if he gets uh, bumped off, you know, if he disappears, some, somebody takes him out, he's going to donate Twitter to Mr. Beast. So Mr. Beast is this fellow, right? He's got 84 million followers or something on Twitter. He makes this awesome content. And recently um, he decided to make a burger. So he's making this Mr. Beast burger. Now, um, you can't go into McDonald's to buy it, but what you can do is he teams up with Virtual Dining Concepts, a company that sort of aggregates and organizes, and maybe the local burger restaurant here in New York will make a Mr. Beast burger and someone from Uber Eats will actually come and deliver it to me. So here I am eating a product that was conceived by somebody that I interact with digitally that was cooked by somebody who owns a physical local restaurant that was delivered to me by a platform. I mean, that's about as chaotic as you can get, right? Yeah, I, I mean, think I don't think I'm going to try one of these burgers, but anyway. <laughs> it's a nightmare for someone like Kraft Foods, right? <laughs> In some ways, maybe it is, right? Because it's like what I would call, Pascal, the artisan economy, but on steroids. Mm -hmm. So if you're from a British derivative heritage in some sense, like I am, right, apart from a Commonwealth company country in New Zealand, you know, years ago using the Brit names, if your last name was Taylor, it's because you make the best shoes and my last name's Baker because I'm making the bread. And so now we're kind of coming again to this artisanal economy where someone can have a great point of view, a great point of influence. Maybe they're making an awesome product and you can follow that person and you can buy into their buy into their taste and they can do it at scale. And if you're really good at it, like maybe some of the Kardashians, you can build multi-billion dollar audiences and businesses. David, I'm curious, putting on your futurist head, less predicting the future, which we all know is impossible, how do you stay on top of these trends? Like, what is the practical advice you might have as in so much happening, such craziness, uh, so weird, like, you know, Mr. Beast making a hamburger. Like, I knew Mr. Beast. I didn't even know that he made a freaking hamburger, you know? So how do you practically stay on top of these things and you then... Know I have a follow-up question to that as well, yeah, which is... sure. So, so I'll give the top-line question. So we have a few different ways of doing it at Idea Farm, but I think the main thing we try to do is to anchor to, like, where are, where are customers going? You know, if you're in, maybe in a more technology space, you know, if you were talking to someone from Apple or Google, they might be saying, hey, we think about what the future of technology is. And we, we try to anchor to, you know, how do people think? How do people feel? What, what kind of habits are they creating? So, you know, there was a whole idea of, a millennial mindset or a psychographic, which was about wanting experiences more than products, wanting convenience, wanting access. And now, of course, there's another generation coming along behind those guys, you know, the Gen Zs, and they have a different point of view too. They're very interested in, in causes. They're very interested in sort of having a voice through their consumption. So sort of looking at what the emerging sort of customer psychographic is, because that psychographic also affects people who 
preceded. So, you know, I'm a, I'm a Gen Xer, I'm not a millennial, but, you know, in some of my buying behavior, I might think like a millennial. So what's the prevailing psychographic that's driving consumption? Anchoring first to that, that's, and then you can go into, okay, well, what are the channels that those people use? What are the messages that excite them and so on? His follow-up question to that is, how do you distinguish between signal and noise in this world? Because there's a lot happening, right? I love the way you're portraying this as a, or pointing this out as a way to look at the customer, looking really through the customer's lens, looking at where are they going? What are they doing? And then really trying to extract and extrapolate from there. How do you know that Mr. Beast Burger is an actual thing and not just a fad? Right. versus like something else which like explodes on the market and becomes this like mass phenomena and actually has staying power yeah that's a great question i think when you think sort of just broadly about the foundational stuff what you've tried to focus on there is what are some tailwinds that that have momentum and that are not going to go away anytime soon so if we if we take something very basic like food right people are thinking a lot more about nutrition about what they ingest about the impact on the environment so there's like a whole bunch of reasons why Whatever the fraction is, now, so we talked about Warby Parker too, so I'll go back to that. So, you know, in 2010, maybe only 1% of eyewear was sold online. You know, that number today might be 10%. It's probably not 100, but it's dramatically increased. If you took the same thing in food and you said, well, there's a number of reasons why whatever the plant-based component of somebody's diet is in 2022, it might be 3x that in 2025 because the environmental footprint, the health concerns, the cost. Mm -hmm. So first of all, trying to anchor to things that we think are going to be around for a long time. So people certainly will not be less concerned about the environment in 2025 than they are now. You know, they won't be less concerned about being stressed out and not getting enough sleep. So what are the things that have some real kind of fundamentals behind them? And then on top of that, how does some specific entity or opportunity like a Mr. Beast, like how does he or she fit into that landscape? That's a much more difficult question to answer what's what's the fad within the trend the trend you can kind of anchor to but specifics become i think really challenging fascinating i love that you're anchoring on the the durable needs there's a, a quote I forgot i think it was attributed it is attributed to jeff bezos where they where he said like i find it really fascinating people always ask me what i think what happens in 10 years and nobody ever asks me what i think will stay the same in 10 years <laughs> Right. That's it goes to your point. Isn't that good? Yeah. Yeah. David, this was an incredible conversation. I, I literally could like have this for hours and hours. Um, I don't want to end this though without yeah. asking you the looking into the future, what do you see? Like, what is it? And I should preface this. We're recording this in May 2022. So it's always important <laughs> to get this timestamp on this, right? Right. But I'm curious to hear what is stuff you're getting excited at the moment? What stuff you're you're keeping an eye out in your in your sector or maybe even beyond the sector? Yeah, so I think what, what we're getting really excited about is sort of innovation that's more fundamental to tackle mm. some of the really big problems. So, you know, I'm sitting here wearing a leather jacket, you know, probably I shouldn't even say that, but would I rather that this jacket that I'm wearing now with the touch and feel and design was made out of reusable plastic or made out of bamboo or some other kind of... If you think about what Allbirds has done, Pascal, with the all merino New Zealand wool shoes, and now they're making stuff out of cane sugar, and, you know, they're basically going through all of these sustainable reusable materials, but still making a product that's fundamentally as good, if not better, than what the alternative is. So I think that's something that really excites us. Could I go out 
And instead of having a BLT with actual bacon that came from some poor pig that was slaughtered and probably lived inhumanely and everything else, and you know, if I have a religious uh, proclivity, I might not want to eat that anyway. What if I had some plant-based bacon that tasted absolutely fantastic, actually was much better for me, involved no harming? So I think that's fundamentally what we're really excited about now, because if you wind back, as you did at the start, what was really cool about a company like Warby is they said, boy, let's take this industry where people are paying 300 bucks for something that makes costs 25, we'll charge them a fair price, 100, and we'll give them something that's just as good. And the value unlock will be through contract manufacturing, better customer experience, better pricing. I think the, the next version of this is the value unlock is through stuff that's just fundamentally far better. It's non-harmful, maybe even regenerative. So at the event, you and I, when we hung out a few weeks ago in Chicago, you know, one of our colleagues, Larry, was telling us about, I'll, I'll give a plug, I haven't spoke to the company, I'm not involved in it, but a company called Sheep Inc. coming out of New Zealand that apparently is not carbon neutral, but a carbon negative regenerative farm. So, man, imagine I'm buying a sweater from those guys. Like, that kind of thing gets me really excited. The products are fundamentally better, but the constituent ingredients from which they are derived are not only necessarily non-toxic and not harmful, actually may even be, you know, conducive to positive things in the environment or, wh or whatever other issue we're looking at. Does this also mean that founding companies becomes harder? Because it <laughs> used to be, like, seriously, when I founded companies, my first company was through the first dot-com boom and bust area. Yep. Um, you need to be a pretty decent technician to actually get anything done there. Yeah. And then we had this weird moment in like the 2010s or so, where it's really more about like being a good businessman, like getting the marketing right, because most of the tech wasn't actually that hard. And the, pr the companies and the problems we solved with those companies weren't actually that hard on average. Yeah. What you're describing means like, man, I, I need like physicists and chemists and biologists and people who yeah. actually <laughs> fundamentally know science. I think to produce real winners, and maybe this is actually ties together some of our other discussion, Pascal, I think yeah. even in the consumer space in the future, to produce real winners, there may have to be fundamental scientific innovation in the product. Whereas again, winding back, you could have a, a, a winner with Dollar Shave Club by having someone in Korea or Dorco make the razors and you market them really well and you have a great, that's all well and good. I think 2022 going on, those kind of businesses, they're so, certainly not um, more difficult to found, they may be easier, but to found a company that actually somehow like, you know, what if it was a razor that just like dissolved and wasn't made of plastic and left no environment, like that's going to be a hard thing. And I, I kind of like the fact that it's bringing back a role for people who are technical, scientifically minded, problem solvers. And if you look back through history, who are the people that created great innovations like electricity or whatever, they were often people who had a science mindset so it's going to be more about that as opposed to just the pure fluff of the uh not fluff but the the mastery of the marketing angle you know so less mbas more science majors kids you heard the lesson <laughs> you know what you have to study um yeah, sure exactly david this was incredible i loved the conversation i loved your point of view your perspective your deep domain expertise in the consumer space both looking at it from an investor's perspective and being on the ground where like the action happens in the startup world, but also like zooming out and thinking about and thinking through what this actually means for organizations at large. I learned a lot and I would just love to continue this conversation. We want to keep these things like relatively digestible. So thank you so much. I love it. David, one last question I have for you. For yeah. folks who want to be in touch with you, who want to follow your work, 
Clearly, yeah. they can go on Amazon and should go on Amazon and buy your book. What else can they do? I, I really need to improve my my social game. We've been talking about social. I mean, they can certainly connect with me on LinkedIn. They can email me at David at Idea Farm Ventures. And then hopefully at some point I'll redo my, my website and everything else. I guess just sort of down focus so much on day work and, and investing. But probably through LinkedIn is always a good place to start. Perfect. Thank you so much, David. Awesome. Thanks a lot, Pascal. Hey, it's Pascal. Thanks for tuning in on this episode of Disrupt Disruption. If you want more, check out the other episodes we have on this podcast. And if you liked it, do us a favor. Go on your podcasting platform of choice, iTunes, Google Play, whatever it is, and leave a quick review. It helps tremendously with getting the insights from our guests out into the world. If you have any questions, send me an email. You can reach me at pascal at finet.com. Thank you so much for listening, and I will hear you here soon.